Amen. Thank you, Russ. Good morning, Redemption Hills Church. It's um, an absolute honor and a privilege to be given the opportunity to uh, stand before you and unpack and open God's word. And so I don't want to ever take this lightly. And um, yeah, I'm just so honored and privileged to be given the opportunity. So thank you, Russ and Mary and the wider eldership team. So I confess I had to run to the toilet, and so I'm not quite sure how much Russ introduced us. Um, so if I repeat myself, I'm sorry, but I'm Liam, my beautiful wife, Alana. Um, I think there she is. She's waving through the glass at the back. Um, and, we, and, and we have, well, I'll just do it for you, Russ. We have little Malachi. He's 10 months old, only just recently turned 10 months. And... Um, we're incredibly grateful for the gift that he is. Alana's also pregnant with number two on the way, which is hugely exciting and um, was surprising as well, but we are incredibly grateful for, for God's gift and that second baby, which we're unsure of the gender yet because we haven't been able to get a scan while in, New Z- while in Australia, um, but we will have that scan. And um, the due date on baby number two is the 1st of January which is hugely exciting. And yes, Malachi's 10 months, and so that's only going to be about a 14-month gap. So please pray for us. Um, and like I, I did hear Russ mention that we're a part of the Village Church in uh, Hamilton, New Zealand, and I've been there for seven and a half years. And together we've been there for two and a half years, on the eldership for three and a half years, and on Tyron and Nicole's NCMI team as well, which we um, count a huge privilege and an honor. We are halfway through a nine-week trip around Australia, so we began in Melbourne, actually with Matt and Elodie Doty, who no doubt, um, for those of you who've been here for a little while, will know them. We were with them for two weeks and just finished up two weeks in Sydney as well, and we were part of the equip um, there, the NCMI equip. We're now here in Tassie for another week or so, or just over a week, and then we head to Perth for five nights. And um, God put Perth on my heart when I was about 18 years old. And then when I was about 19 or 20, um, I felt God clearly say, Liam, you need to go scout the land, scout the land. And it's taken me five years or so um, to, to uh, it sounds terrible, but to obey God. Um, that wasn't my intention, COVID and marriage and babies and things like that. But we're eventually getting to Perth um, only in a week and a bit. And we're hugely excited for that and trusting And please pray with us that God would speak and God would lead and God would guide. Um, We really do want to hear his voice and his heart for us and for the church he may want us to plant. There's a Perth in Tasmania. Oh, the the prophet has spoken. (laughs) The prophet has spoken. Um, Anyway, all that to say, we trust in God and we'd love for you guys to join us in praying. Uh, And just before I get into this morning, just again, want to honor Russ, Mary, and the eldership team, not only for the privilege to preach, but more so to spend two and a bit weeks in Russ and Mary's home. And uh, if you know me, I ask lots of questions. So I've been question after question after question, quizzing Russ and Mary. And um, sometimes, yeah, I put Russ to sleep. No, but just so, do you guys know how good you have it? The goodness of God and the favor of God to bless you with Russ and Mary and this eldership team is, um, is phenomenal. And so I know you should be aware of that and you are aware of that, 
But um, we've been overwhelmed, not just by their generosity, but their openness to host us and pour into our lives and pour into the call of God in our lives and help prepare us for the next season. So we hugely thank you. And so thank you, Russ and Mary and the rest of the eldership team. Let me ask a question. Have you ever been cautioned not to do something, yet you did it anyway? Hands up, if you've been cautioned not to do something, yet you've done it anyway. How did that go for you? Wet paint? So, so there was a time in my life, I was 17 years old, and we were on a school camp at the Kruger National Park, for those of you who know game reserves in South Africa, originally from there. And uh, the teachers cautioned us, do not leave the dormitories at night. They also cautioned us with signs all around the thing, danger wild animals, danger wild animals. And, and, and I failed to listen to that caution, and I won't get into the story, but long story short, my, myself and eight friends were charged and chased by two hyena. And it was traumatizing. <laughs> Listen to the cautions. Another time I came up with a horrible idea of pulling an armed robbery prank on youth at an NZ Equip. Horrible idea, horrible, horrible idea. And I, I, I thought it was a good idea being 18 and uh, and my parents cautioned me not to do it. And I didn't listen to the caution, and it, it was a terrible idea, and it was not good. I won't get into the details. Thankfully not. But uh, maybe I can share that story at the end, once the sermon is completely finished, of course. What's the point? People give cautions for a good reason. But if we don't take heed, if we don't consider and, and pay careful attention to the caution, then we're not going to be saved from the danger or mistake. And this morning on my heart, I believe God's given me a word for His church, the church, and I've had the privilege of sharing this with a few of the local churches that partner with the NCMI team that we've spent some time in. But, but my heart this morning is that I want to look at the book of Judges and I wanna highlight three cautions that I believe we as God's people today can learn from. Three cautions this morning. And so if you are a note taker, then the title of this, this morning's message is A Caution to the Christian. A Caution to the Christian. So let's quickly pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity. But Lord, I also thank you for the privilege it is that we as your people have access to your word and we've been given the great gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I ask that Lord, you would use me and that you would use your word to confront us, to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. And Lord, like we see in your word, the God-breathed word, that you would equip us, that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. amen, amen. So before we get to the book of Judges and the story of the Israelites in the book of Judges, I thought it'd be helpful to just begin with a little bit of context. And so this morning I wanna start from Abraham, not, not right from the start of Genesis, but I wanna start with the story of Abraham. And as quickly as I can, God desired a family. And God wanted a family for himself. And so he called Abraham 
And he told Abraham to leave his country and with his family, go to a land that God had promised him. It was in the land of Canaan, or what we would refer to as the promised land. And so God said that he would bless Abraham and that he would make Abraham a great nation. And that this nation that would come from Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And so the story goes that Abraham had a son called Isaac. Isaac had a son called Jacob. Jacob, whose name became Israel, he had 12 sons. But his favorite son was Joseph. Now, of course, if your parents have had favorites, you'd know that's not good. And so Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, was hated by the rest of the brothers. And again, long story short, the brothers sold him into slavery and Joseph ended up in Egypt. The favor of God was all over Joseph and Joseph went from being a slave to being the governor of Egypt, second in charge under Pharaoh. There was a widespread famine in the land and so all the surrounding nations had to come to Egypt for food. And Jacob and his sons were living in the land of Canaan and so Jacob or Israel sent his sons to Egypt to go and get food. And there's this beautiful story and this beautiful restoration between Joseph and his brothers. So Joseph, governor of Egypt, invites his brothers, invites his father, invites his family to come and live in Egypt. And we see in the scriptures that the nation of Israel, the family of Israel thrived and they flourished. But Joseph obviously died. And with that, Joseph's leadership was forgotten. There was a new Pharaoh who became, he, he was intimidated by how strong and how powerful Israel had become. And so the new Pharaoh places the Israelites into slavery in Egypt. And then if you've watched the Prince of Egypt, you'll know that Moses was born to rescue and deliver the Israelites from bondage and from slavery. And we see God manifest his power through plagues and eventually Pharaoh releases the Israelites out of slavery and they're now into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they're wandering through the wilderness. Moses makes some silly decisions and so God says, Moses, you will not lead my people into the promised land. And so Moses eventually dies. His assistant Joshua then leads the nation of Israel from the wilderness through the Jordan River, through Jericho and into the promised land. And so that's the context from when God called Abraham to the nation of Israel now being in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham's offspring. And his intention was that his people would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he says that. God in Exodus 19, verse five and six, God speaks to his people and he speaks his intentional, specific plan to say, I want you as my people to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. Why? Because God wanted his people to be a blessing to the nations. That's what he said to Abraham. And so are you with me? And so in that place, we now pick up in the book of Judges. Actually, one other thing before we, before we look at that. God told the Israelites exactly what they needed to do once they entered the promised land. And we see that in Numbers chapter 33 from verse 51 and 52. God speaks to Moses and he says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all 
the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. So why did God instruct the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites? God wanted his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that they would be a blessing to the nations. The whole point of driving out the Canaanites from the promised land was so that God's people, the Israelites, would avoid the moral corruption and would avoid the idolatry that was within the land of Canaan. There was a lot of child sacrifice. There was so much pagan worship taking place and God wanted his people to be set apart, to be a holy nation. That Hebrew word is kodesh, to be holy, to be sacred, to be set apart, to be different from the others. And so the Israelites entered the promised land. The different tribes inherited the different territories within the land, but there was still lots of land to be taken and there was still lots of Canaanites living in the land. And so the first point this morning, the first caution that I wanna share and present to you, sorry, tissues, is cultural compromise. Point one, caution number one for us as God's people today is cultural compromise. So if your Bibles are open to the book of Judges, you'll see in chapter one, the second part of chapter one, there are consistent tales of partial victories. There's a consistent tale of partial victories. We see a variety of the tribes of Israel. They had won their territories. They had, they had gained victory and they had received their territory. But instead of completely driving out the Canaanites, they allowed the Canaanites to settle alongside them. So God said, remove all the things, bash all the high places, drive out the Canaanites. But this is what the Israelites did instead. Chapter one, verse 21, one example. But the people of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 29 of chapter one, another example. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. And so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Israel partially obeyed God. But incomplete obedience is still disobedience. And so God confronts them on their disobedience. And I just wanna stress it again, God wanted his people, his treasured possession, to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests so that the nation of Israel would be a blessing to the other nations. He wanted his people to show the other nations what God was like. But as we'll see, Israel failed at this miserably. So chapter two of Judges from verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the prophets who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. 
What do we see in that passage and in the, the wider passage of Scripture in Judges chapter 2? Israel failed to completely drive out the Canaanites, and so they allowed them to settle alongside. But it didn't stop at being alongside. Over time, the Israelites became accustomed, they became familiar with the sinful ways of their neighbors. But it doesn't stop there either. Not only were they alongside the Canaanites, not only did they become accustomed and familiar, but actually that familiarity and that being accustomed to led to there being an attraction and an enticement for the idolatry of their neighbors. But not only were they alongside and accustomed and attracted, but eventually the Israelites adopted the sinful ways of their Canaanite neighbors. And eventually, by adopting the idolatry, it led to the Israelites completely abandoning God. Do we see the cultural compromise or, or the progression of cultural compromise? It begins by being alongside. Then there's an accustomed to, then there's an attracted to, and then there's an adoption and ultimately an abandoning of God. And we see that with the Israelites. Instead of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, you could not tell the difference between the Israelites and the Canaanites. God wanted them to be holy, set apart, sacred, different. Why? So that the Israelites could show who God is and what He is like, but instead they failed miserably, miserably and you could not tell them apart. They did not avoid the moral corruption and idolatry of their neighbors. And ultimately that led to them abandoning God. And so as God's people today, as you and I, we might not necessarily have statues and wooden carvings that we would bow down and worship to. But I wanna remind us that there are cultural modern day idols that are influencing the church. There are cultural modern day idols that have influence over you and I. Tim Keller, who recently went to be with the Lord, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, this is how he describes what an idol is. We're talking about idolatry. Well, what's an idol for us in 2023? He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God or anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. And scriptures are clear, Paul urges the Corinthian church saying, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry, flee from it. John to the Ephesian church, I think it is, 1 John 5, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why is God urging his people to flee and avoid idolatry? I believe it's because just like God had a mission for his people Israel through Christ and as the church, as God's people today, we are on a mission. And idolatry will cause the mission to malfunction. 
Idolatry will cause the mission of God to malfunction, not because of God and His, His inability, but because God uses His people who are on mission to do His work. And when we are victims of idolatry, forget fulfilling the mission of God. As God's people today, as the church, we are called holy priests in God's kingdom, showing the goodness of God who called us out of darkness into His glorious light, into His marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2.9. That's the call on us as His people. As the church, we're called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Matthew 5. As the church, we're called to go into the world, preach the gospel and demonstrate the kingdom through signs, wonders, and miracles. Mark 16. As the church, we call to disciple the nations and to then teach these disciples to obey Christ. As the church, that's Matthew 28. As the church, we are ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ, representing God who makes His appeal through you and I. God is making His appeal through us. We're on a mission, church, to seek and to save the lost, to establish and advance the kingdom of God. But it means that we need to be in this world and not of this world. In this world, but not of this world. The, the mission will malfunction because of idolatry. We must flee from idolatry. We, we need to keep ourselves from idols. And I don't know about you, but I think it's so easy to become accustomed to the things of this world. As we live alongside those and as we, by the power of God, reach out and witness and disciple and seek and save the lost, it's very easy to not just become accustomed to the things of this world, but actually to be attracted to what the world worships. Very easy. But again, like we see with the Israelites, we, it doesn't stop at attraction to what the world worships. It actually leads to us adopting the idolatry of the world around us. And as we see time after time after time, and no doubt as you think in your own life, and maybe there's family members or children or grandchildren or siblings who you see this cultural compromise progression where ultimately they abandon God. God doesn't abandon them, but they abandon God. And church, we need to be intentional and careful not to compromise with the culture around us. So the question this morning is, what idolatry have maybe you become accustomed to? What idolatry have you been attracted to? What idolatry have maybe you even adopted? Or maybe you're in the room and you would say, Liam, I've already abandoned God. There was research conducted with 1,000 pastors within the United States, and they were asked the question, what idols are influencing the church today? And these were the responses, the eight responses of these 1,000 pastors. Number one, comfort. Control. Three, money. Approval. Success, social influence, political power, and sex. Those were the eight. And I, if I was to participate in this survey, I would suggest family. That would have been my response. 
your spouse or children, or lack thereof. Now let me say, some of these things are not necessarily bad because submitted to God and His will and His patterns, these can be good, godly things. But when it becomes more important to you than God, when it begins to absorb your heart and your imagination more than God, or when you seek these things to give you what only God can give, it becomes an idol, it becomes sinful and dangerous, and ultimately, if not dealt with, I believe will lead to an abandonment of God down the track. And so what idols have we been accustomed to, attracted to, or even adopted this morning? The good news is you can recognize it, you can confess it, you can repent of it, and you can release it right there where you are, and you can walk into the preferred future that God has for your life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So maybe this morning you need to do business with God. Just moving along, the second caution, the next two aren't nearly as long or in detail. Number two, a generational abdication. It's the second caution that I believe God wants to speak to his people. To abdicate is to fail to fulfill a responsibility, a duty, or a task. It's to fail to fulfill a, a mandate. And I believe God has given his people a mandate. Now a mandate is an official order or commission to do something. An, an official order or commission to do something. And I believe the caution for us as God's people today is this generational abdication because God has given you and I a mandate to raise up the next generation. It's a mandate God has given us and the challenge and the question this morning is have we or have you as Redemption Hills Church, have you abdicated your responsibility in this generational mandate? Deuteronomy 6 verse 6 onwards. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we see how the Israelites went with this generational mandate. Judges chapter two from verse six. When Joshua dismissed the people, Joshua was still alive, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, they passed away. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The next generation did not know God and they did not know the works of God. 
And that ultimately led to them living, along the, living alongside the Canaanites. It led to them being accustomed, attracted, adopted, and abandoning God completely. We see the Israelites failed to disciple the next generation. And so by default, the Canaanites did. The Israelites failed to disciple the next generation, and so by default, the Canaanites did. And you and I as the church today, we have been given this generational mandate to disciple the generations. And if we don't disciple our young people, the culture around us will. Psalm 78 from verse four. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Church, we cannot abdicate our responsibility to disciple the next generation so that they would know God, so that they would love God, so that they would set their hope in God, so that they would know the will of God, the ways of God, that they would know God's word that they would serve the purposes of God in their generation. Have you abdicated your responsibility? Ephesians 6 verse four, I love this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Help me, Lord. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We have a job to do. Dad's in the room. You have a job to do. Bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. And for the dads who, for, for the couples who have children, one flesh union of marriage, we partner in this together. Parents, this is your primary responsibility. The, your, the discipleship of your children is your responsibility primarily. It's not the children's ministry team. It's not the youth ministry. It's not the church. It is your responsibility primarily. Have you abdicated that? And for those who don't have children, it's your responsibility as well. It takes a village to raise a child. We all have a part to play. We need a variety of voices speaking into our children. Parents, grandparents, teachers, youth leaders, pastors, friends, aunties, uncles, we need a variety of voices. We all have a part to play. There's no excuse. And so have we abdicated our responsibility? John Wesley said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. What one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And the question coming back to cultural compromise is this. What are we, what cultural idols are we tolerating 
that the next generation will embrace? What are we tolerating today that our children or grandchildren will embrace? We need to deal with this. We're in a battle with culture and if we surrender, future generations will suffer. So Redemption Hills Church, will you take this generational mandate seriously? And number three, the third caution is that of gospel amnesia. Amnesia refers to the loss of memories, information, and experiences. It's the loss of memories, the loss of facts, information, experiences. And so I'm obviously referring to spiritual amnesia. And for those with physical amnesia, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And so I, I totally understand that. But in the context of spiritual amnesia, gospel amnesia, we see the people of Israel that forgot God. Chapter three, verse seven. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. The nation of Israel forgot the Lord their God. Israel failed to remember that it was God who saved them out of bondage and slavery. They failed to remember it. Israel failed to remember that it was God who manifested his power and sent the plague so that they would be set free. The nation of Israel forgot that it was God who by the blood of the lamb redeemed his people at Passover. The Israelites forgot that it was God who led them by cloud in the day and fire at night. The Israelites forgot that it was God who parted the Red Sea, allowed the nation of Israel through, and then used the same very sea to destroy the Egyptian chariots charging at them. The Israelites failed to remember that it was God who stopped the flooded, raging, rushing river Jordan and allowed the full nation of Israel to cross on dry ground. The Israelites forgot that it was God who allowed the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down and to allow his people into the promised land. Israel forgot God. It wasn't the Baals and the false idols who did anything for them. Yet they went back to worshiping that because they forgot God. Their forgetfulness led to their idolatry. And as God's people today, we too can live with this gospel amnesia. We can forget what Christ has done for us. We can forget what his blood has purchased. We can forget who we are as sons and daughters in Christ. We can forget, and I believe we have forgotten, that our lives don't belong to us anymore because we were bought with a price. We forget that. We forget the gospel mandate given to us. We forget that we're on mission. We too for, can fail to live in the light of God's salvation and grace. And so church, as I close, have you personally, have you succumbed to gospel amnesia? Are you living in a state of forgetfulness of who God is and what he has done in your own life 
and in the lives of those around you. We need to protect ourselves from forgetfulness. We need to protect ourselves from gospel amnesia. How? Number one, I don't actually have points. I'll just share some of the things. We need to regularly gather with the saints and worship God. We need this. It's in these times as we corporately gather as His body and worship Him and glorify Him and just, the, just focus on the majesty of our King Jesus. He forms us and He fashions us and He shapes the way we think and the songs that we sing. It's just reminding us of good theology as long as we sing in good songs. It's renewing our mind. It's reminding us of who He is. We need discipleship groups. Who's keeping you accountable? Who's ensuring that you don't drift? We need to be in God's word. We need to be reading it and studying it and meditating it personally. We need to be in personal prayer. We need to regularly partake in the Lord's Supper and communion. Why? Because number one, it reminds us of the covenant we now have. But I believe it's also covenant renewal. It not only does it remind, but it actually renews our covenant with God. This new covenant, bigger, greater, better. Both covenants were covenants of grace, but the new covenant is so much bigger, deeper, more graceful. So how are you doing personally? And for those who are able, can I invite you just to stand to your feet? How are you personally? Not how your spouse or your child or your friend or the person on the other side of the auditorium, but how are you personally doing in each of those three cautions? How are you doing with cultural compromise? How are you doing with generational abdication or this mandate God's given us? And how are you doing in that caution of gospel amnesia. Even now, as we stand before our great God, as we stand before Him, as we stand in the presence of God, allow Him, by His Holy Spirit, to begin to highlight, to begin to reveal. Hopefully, He's already been doing that. But what an opportunity we have, even now, as we stand before our great God to do business with Him, that we wouldn't walk in and walk out the same way. We wouldn't leave the same. But we'd take heed, we'd consider, we'd pay careful attention to these cautions, that we would learn as God's people today, that we would learn from the mistakes of Israel. So Father, even now as we are standing before You, we thank You, Jesus, that You are our great high priest, that we can approach the throne room of God with confidence and receive grace in our time of need. So Holy Spirit, I invite you, I ask you to begin convicting and confronting and highlighting and revealing areas in our hearts and minds and lives, even now, Lord, as we stand before you. If we've compromised with the culture, if we've become accustomed or attracted to or even adopted the ways of this world, 
Lord, help us. Lord, if we've abdicated our responsibility to parents or to grandparents or to disciple the next generation, show us. Lord, if we're living forgetful, show us, Lord. So I just want to invite you, just where you are, just do business with God. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to say sorry, say sorry. not going to labor it, but I don't want to rush either. Hate for any of us to leave after worshiping our great God to leave the same. Holy Spirit, we ask you would do all that you need to do in our hearts and in our minds. You, Jesus, as the great surgeon would come and do surgery on us that you, God, the, the holy God, would come as a consuming fire and would refine and would purify our hearts and our minds right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm gonna hand back to Russ in a moment, but I'd love to just make an opportunity, whether it's, now or at the end of the service, however Russ wants to facilitate it, but if you're in the room and, and someone had to ask you, are you free? And you couldn't say yes, then we'd love to just pray that God would rescue and deliver you from whatever it is. Or if you need someone to stand alongside you in prayer as you do business with God, then we'd love to stand and pray with you as well. But I'll just invite Russ now to come and whether we close or do that now. But let's stay in a posture.